Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 224 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guests are Julie Peterson and Dr. Stephen Sarici. Julie is an SLP who's practiced in the schools, acute care, rehab, home health, and long-term care. She has worked in educational publishing, software, and medical technologies. She currently serves as the clinical specialist and subject matter expert for dysphagia at Bracco Diagnostics. Dr. Sarici is an executive director of medical affairs who serves as the head of medical services, Americas for Bracco Diagnostics Incorporated. He's been with Bracco for 20 years in various medical scientific roles. He received his MD from the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey and completed his residency training in diagnostic radiology and nuclear medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital and Medical Center of New York and is currently board certified in both of those specialties. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. All right. We have some wonderful guests with us tonight. We have Julie Peterson and we have Dr. Sarisi, and they are joining us from... I wanted to say Verabar, but the company is actually Bracco, right? Um, so yeah, Julie, tell the people a little bit about yourself and, and why you guys are here. Okay. Well, I am a speech language pathologist and I started practicing before you even needed a master's degree to practice in the schools and also before dysphagia ever hit the field of speech pathology. So I did work in the schools between undergrad and graduate school, but I always knew that I wanted to be in the medical setting. And the typical path back then when the jobs were not so abundant was to get a job with a rehab agency, get your C's, and then go after the setting that you really want. And for me, that was the hospital. 
So practiced in the hospital, about five years into practice, entered dysphagia. And I found myself in x-ray, intimidated by the radiologist, and doing the best that I could to learn as fast as I can. And I certainly didn't know anything about barium. A bit later, I pursued a sales career that eventually led me to Brocco, where I could positively impact patient care again. And that's where I have found my home. Been here for 20 years. And my current role is to be the clinical specialist and the team manager. Amazing. I know, Julie. I'm so glad we finally get to do this episode. I feel like we've been talking about doing it for years and years and years and years. But I just, I want to say you're one of those people that's been around the field for for a long time, but in the most positive way possible. I think every time everyone, anyone brings up your name, it's always like, she's such a nice person. She's such a wonderful person. So thank you for just being such a kind, wonderful person in this field. Thank you. Yeah. You too. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And Dr. Cerisi. Uh, uh, hi, yeah. I'm a uh, radiologist by training. I was for a few years on faculty at uh, Columbia, uh, but I've been in industry for over 25 years now. And it's funny because early in your training, uh, which for me was in the 1980s, I was doing barium work. Uh, and then it became less and less clinically. Uh, even by the 90s, it was starting to uh, decrease in favor of CT and other modalities. And now here toward the later part of my career, I'm back to barium again and trying to support a new way of, of, or an updated way of looking at doing barium imaging from what I learned in the eighties. And, uh, it's, it's quite something to try to all these decades later go back to that and see that there's still some people who are doing it like we did it then. And uh want to get the word out that there's a better way. Yes, there very much is. I, I just had flashbacks of, you know, when I worked at some really rural hospitals and it's like, oh, just use a squeeze of this and a dab of that. And a, that's fine. Just just eyeball it. So it, it yeah. wasn't any different in Manhattan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh back then, but uh we, we're trying to make it better now. Awesome. Awesome. Look forward to this conversation. So, OK, so where where should we start? Well, I think where we should start is just talking about dysphagia in general, and then we can move into one of the points that we really want to make here is that all barium products aren't the same, and why it's important to choose the right tools for the right exam, and how our team can help with that. All right. So I'm going to have Dr. Cerisi get started with uh, talking about dysphagia and the barium products, and we'll go from there. Thanks, Julie. Well, there, there have been, uh, various groups that have published about the, the burden or the, 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 the cost of dysphagia. It's more than cost. It's a clinical burden overall. Their work was nicely summed up in a, uh, somewhat recent consensus article, uh, that came out last year from a, a panel of interdisciplinary experts and Basically, the issue with dysphagia can be summed up two ways, and I will I will read a bit from the paper. The first part has to do with the, the clinical and from the patient's point of view. Basically, unrecognized, poorly managed dysphagia, which is all too common, can lead to things like malnutrition, because the patient will avoid eating, volume depletion, they'll, even, they'll avoid drinking too, obviously a reduced quality of life. And when they do eat and drink, the possibility of aspiration, which could lead to pneumonia, which could lead even if it's enough aspiration 
to choking or drowning and death. So it's not a non-serious problem. On the other hand, for the individual, on the other hand, for the healthcare system, the way to look at it, and people have assessed this, is that a diagnosis of dysphagia affects, you know, your in-hospital mortality figures, your morbidity figures by which your hospital is assessed, and also affects your costs by affecting length of stay and uh, as well as the disposition of the patient afterwards. So, for instance, uh, adult patients with dysphagia were 1.7 times more likely to die in the hospital. Patients with dysphagia had a mean hospital length of stay that were twice those of patients without dysphagia. That's big money right there. Patients with dysphagia were one-third more likely to be transferred to a post-acute care facility, and those cost a lot. And total inpatient costs, when you added it up, were about $6,000 higher on average for, for patients than those without a diagnosis of dysphagia. So there is um, a financial burden to the healthcare system, as well as the individual burden to an individual patient whose own life can be very badly affected by this. So we have to get it right. That could be the end of the podcast right there. I mean, every day. (laughs) You know, we talk about these things and we just sort of throw them out. But I mean, I think those statistics that you gave were just so compelling and I think, you know, sometimes SLPs, especially we're going through a lot of burnout now with after going through COVID and it's like remembering these things that, I mean, we really do, we really are very impactful as part of the team, you know, in acute care and, and helping to keep these costs down for the facilities. And like you said, also the burden for the patients. So, yeah. Which is a great segue to why we need to get it right and why we need to use the right tools. Yes. So Dr. Cerisi is going to take us a little walk through barium land next. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Oh my goodness. Where yeah, you, to go. you probably, you probably can, but anyway, <laughs> um, the fact is, is, uh, barium sulfate is your contrast agent and it's really, it's a molecule with six atoms in it. One of barium, one of sulfur and four of oxygen. Uh, it's insoluble. It basically is sort of a powdered rock or powdered mineral salt, you could say more accurately. And by itself, it, the only thing it's good for is blocking x-rays, uh, in, in terms of medical use. It has other industrial uses. To make it a usable product, it has to be mixed with a number of other components for it to exert the kind of uh, medical diagnostic effects that you want it to exert. For instance, if you want the barium to coat the inner lining of the gastrointestinal tract so you can get a, a double contrast image where the barium coats the lining and then you fill the lumen of the intestine with gas or air, well, barium sulfate is not going to do that on its own. You have to both emulsify it so that it is mixed into the and suspended into a liquid, and then you have to get that liquid to stick to the inner lining of the uh, gastrointestinal tract, which requires uh, specific uh, agents such as the gum of the acacia tree or a high concentration of methylcellulose or carboxymethylcellulose to get it to do that. And if you don't want it to do that, you have to make sure that you make your barium product not have exactly those ingredients. 
you also have to get a barium product to get the right amount of, um, of viscosity, consistency, texture, whatever you want to call it. This is particularly important with the Varibar products. So you have to mix in components that give it what you want in terms of its thickness and its texture. Uh, these are usually starches, whether they come from a xanthan, which is a bacteria, or carrageenan, which is a seaweed, or just cornstarch from corn. There's a lot of, uh, there's various ways that you can get the thickness where you want it to be. The emulsifiers, which I mentioned briefly before, and suspending agents are absolutely essential to keep the barium products in the liquid. Otherwise, or the barium particles in the liquid. Otherwise, the particles are going to come out of the liquid and, uh, and basically re-solidify in a clump. And with the Varibar products, there are some uh, very uh, carefully added texturizers that try to mimic food textures, uh, such as glycerin, to try to give it a mouthfeel that uh, uh, is, is, is good for the patient in terms of doing the test and makes it seem more food-like. You also are going to have in every barium product a laxative. Um, that laxative is going to help keep water in the bowel so that there's something for the barium sulfate particles to be suspended in. And it's going to help bring the barium through the gastrointestinal tract to be eliminated. Otherwise, it'll just stay in there and ultimately fall out of suspension and clump, which you don't want. Interesting. So a barium product's pretty complicated recipe, and different recipes have to be used to make different products that do different things. Yeah. Let me, can I ask you a quick question? I had heard that barium, actually, some people, some SLPs didn't, did not want to use it and did not want to recommend video fluoroscopies because barium can constipate their patients. And is that? Well, but yeah, by itself, it would, but the, the, uh, and certainly if a patient becomes dehydrated, you know, if there just simply isn't enough water in the bowel, that's going to happen. Because the barium, you can put all the suspending agents in the mixture if you want, but if there's no water to suspend it in, what's it going to do? So there has to be a certain level of hydration of the patient. But the addition of either sorbitol or xylitol into the barium product, and every barium product has one or the other, helps keep water in the bowel so that the product stays suspended and can move through because these are osmotic molecules that aren't absorbed by the body, so they stay in the bowel and they draw water in. Uh, but obviously someone who's terribly de- dehydrated is not going to have enough water regardless. Well, and I think the ironic point here is that we want to get these tests done to help patients swallow, but a lot of times these patients are dehydrated because they are not swallowing well. So it's a it's an interesting irony here. Well, yeah. yeah, and you have to figure out how to get them hydrated for this. And obviously water is, you know, the barium product comes with water, but uh ideally you want the patient to be well hydrated themselves so that the sorbitol and xylitol have something to pull and keep into the bowel. Excellent. There's a little bit of good news here too. I'm going to jump in. It's the higher density barium's that are more subject to constipation. Would you not agree, Dr. Sarisi? Well, like the double contrast upper GI. Um, Farabar is very low density, right? right? And we give smaller quantities. You're not drinking the whole bottle either. Right. What are the, your comments? The, the density of the barium sulfate in the mixture is important in terms of it being constipated, in terms of it coming out of suspension and forming clumps. So, Density in a barium mixture can vary from like one or two percent in something you use for CT 
to 240% weight the volume, which is, you know, easy HD, which you use for your double contrast uh, studies. So you have a huge, huge range of densities. The Varibar products in specific are at a range of 40% weight to volume. So they're not highly dense. Um, and it's, a, it's less uh, likely to constipate with them than with a denser preparation. It's not impossible, but it's less likely. You're also not using huge amounts of it. So like when you're doing a upper GI series, they're, the, the patient's drinking, you know, hundreds of milliliters of the barium product. Uh, that's not the case with a, a MBSS. So the, the rather smaller amount of the, the product that you're consuming there uh, is less likely to cause any significant constipation. Interesting. Thank you so much for clarifying all of that. So fascinating. Ovarian could be so interesting. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Who knew it could be so verbose? I know. Right? Thank you. That was a wonderful trip to barium land. So. Yes, that's right. So Dr. Cerisi has already somewhat addressed why to use Verabar, right? But um, obviously the the biggest driver with the need for this product was to standardize what we do in our profession. And also to have the rheologic properties and components that are optimal for our exam. Dr. Cerisi, would you like to expand on that at all? Well, sure. Um, there is a standardized protocol for performing the, the barium swallow study called the MBSIMP that has had clinical validation. That's important. It's been clinically validated in the series of patients. And what the MBS IMP protocol does, it stands for Modified Barium Swallow Impairment Profile, is it gives you a systematic systematic way of using multiple viscosities of products, multiple textures of products, in order to get a, a complete and standardized picture of the patient's swallowing function. It's not about testing for any individual food, per se, that a patient would eat, but rather testing a range of, uh, of textures with the patient swallowing to see what the range of dysfunction is and what, what it looks like, what it does to the patient. And the fact that it's validated and it's standardized, so it would be not just the same from operator to operator within a, uh, an institution, but from institution to institution, you have one test that you're doing on anybody so that, on everybody, so that if a patient goes from one institution to another, the follow-up will be fundamentally the same, uh, is important. And as part of that MBSIMP protocol, four of the five barium pro, uh, Varibar products are are listed in it as components of the of the suite of tests that you that you do as part of the protocol. So basically, the Varibar products are part of really a standardized system of testing that gets you the most clinically meaningful full answer about the patient's swallowing dysfunction. Beautiful. Thank you. And we have a lot of people using the products, right? But we talk to people every day, and we get some some questions where I thought it might be worth mentioning some mistakes that we see out there because this is our opportunity to you know, get people doing it the right way. So I think it's worth mentioning and going over yeah. a few of those yeah. things. So I guess my assumption was that everybody in the world used Verabar. <laughs> we're getting there. No. Okay. No. We're getting there. Right. We're getting there. Okay. We're getting there. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you get there one at a time. Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. Okay. So, but those who are yeah. using it, um, we, we also want to talk about some of the misuses that we've heard 
and and um, incorrect storage that we've heard, just so that information's out there. I had a presentation one time where someone said, wait, you mean we're not supposed to pour the Verabar nectar into the Hormel pre-thickened nectar? So they thought they were still supposed to be mixing, you know, these things. And the products are intended to be used as is, straight up. That's how we stay standardized. And that's how we maintain the opacification at 40% weight to volume that is in our labeling. So, so that's a, that's a big one. I also see people squeezing the pudding into a pudding product. So kind of the same concept. Now that one I can kind of, if somebody hasn't been properly educated on that they don't have coating properties, I can see because people used to use the easy paste, which was a very sticky product and they had to unstick it a little bit. So they would squeeze it into a chocolate pudding, for example. But the pudding itself is used straight up. You don't have to put it in anything and it's supposed to be used as is. So that's one error that we would like to, um, clarify two more that we see uh, mistakes out there. And one of them is not following the instructions properly to mix up the thin liquid. And as we know, the thin liquid is probably the most sensitive, right? For catching that silent aspiration. So that one comes in a powder form and um, it is mixed with water at the point of use. And it does need to be followed properly. Properly. you Fill with water up to the line, you shake it, you let it settle for five minutes, and then you refill it back up to the line again. And so sometimes we have people saying, well, you know, I this happened or that happened, and maybe they just didn't mix it right. So we want to make sure that people are following the mixing instructions because that's how we stay scientific and standardized. Yeah. And I, and I know you guys have always been so helpful about if if a, a new clinician isn't used to working with Farabar, you know, helping walk them through sort of using the different consistencies. And yes. so I just wanted to throw that out there. If you're a, a new lonely cl- clinician with no one to help, they they are very, very happy to help yes. you. So. Yes, for sure. And the last mistake that we see is what do you do after you open a bottle? And the Verabar thin liquid, because we've added water and it does not have preservatives, it goes in the fridge for 72 hours. Most people get that, understand that. But other people put the other products in the fridge, and that's not necessary. Those products were intended to be stored after opening at room temperature, and they'll stay stable for 21 days after opening. So I also want to let people know that they do not have to put those products in the fridge. As a matter of fact, we don't want you to put them in the fridge because why, Dr. Cerisi? (laughs) Because viscosity depends on temperature. And when you make them colder, you make them thicker. And they're no longer at the standard viscosity they're meant to be at, which is keyed for room temperature. Also, the reason they're meant to be stored for 21 days is those products have preservatives. So everything from nectar, thin honey, honey pudding, they have preservatives. So they don't have to go in the refrigerator. Thin liquid doesn't, so it it should. And thin thin liquid's viscosity isn't going to change very much because it hardly has any viscosity. So putting it in the refrigerator doesn't make that much difference. But the other products, which are thicker, their viscosity can change significantly when they get colder. Yeah. So such a fun chemistry lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a very good chemistry teacher because I got to tell you, I didn't do very well in chemistry. And I can understand Dr. Cerisi. So this is all good. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. No, well, thank you for explaining that. Cause I think that, that always is something that I, you know, people ask all the time is how long can I keep this or how do I store this? Or, you know, our, our supply people are telling us we have to throw it out after one use. And I, you know, that's gotta be obviously such a huge waste of, of money and resources. So it, thank it you is. for clarifying. It is. Yeah. And you want to make sure that people do not mix up the sorts of standards that exist for parental products, injectable products with oral products. It's not the same thing at all. And if you look at the labeling, the labeling says of, of our product says exactly what we just told you. Thin liquid can be in a fridge up to 72 hours. The others can be up to 21 days. So you would be following labeling by doing it that way. Yes. And I think it, I think it's worth mentioning that we have people using the wrong barium for the wrong reason. They're like, well, we're not allowed to use multi-use products. So we're going to use this. Easy HD or Easy Pake instead. So they're doing a trade of single use to multi use to follow policy, but they're using the wrong product. So which one is more important? Out of indication. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and again, and you see, Julie, that is exactly the point. We're not allowed to use multi use products. That comes from the standards for parenteral injectable products. That doesn't come from the standards that are established for oral They've products. They've generalized. Interesting. No, so they have they have taken something for parenterals and are applying it to orals that is not appropriate. And ultimately, what's on your labeling is what you you know you're 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 held to in that regard. And so that's what's like orders. FDA approved or right, in, right, yeah. which is it's based on information we gave to the FDA. The FDA was satisfied, so they approved it and put it in the labeling. So. That's our stability information, you know, on our own testing of the products. Yes. All right. Now, Tracy, you mentioned something earlier about doesn't everybody use Verabar? Well, um, yeah. like Dr. Cerisi said, we're getting there. We do have year-over-year growth, but we also do bump into people that don't think they need it. And they have all kinds of reasons um, for not using it. So would you like to walk down that Lane with us? I would love to. Yeah, yeah. Well, this stuff is all just so fascinating because I think, you know, it's like we come up with all these standard standardized protocols and that's what clinicians want, right? Like we want to know what is the most evidence-based way to do this. And then we get the information and then we throw it out the window and, and here we are. So yes, I would love to get back on well, the right you track. Will be, we will be chiming in some more as we go through these. So, um, so I am going to just tell you some things that we hear on a daily basis. Dr. Cerisi will respond and I'll respond and we'll keep going. <laughs> so all right. one of the things we get, it, it's kind of, it's worded different ways, but anywhere from, well, we're not interested. We're fine. We're okay. Uh, we don't like change. We don't want to do something new. Well, yes, that's easier. Uh, that seems safer, but in fact, we're all in healthcare required to do continuing medical education to maintain our uh, licensure certifications in one way or another. And the reason we are is that we're expected to keep abreast of new developments so that we can incorporate them into practice. Um, so it's actually a part of what we're supposed to be doing to be licensed healthcare professionals to keep up with the, keep up with things. So I think that it is our obligation to do things that are new if the evidence that comes out is supporting them. 
we also have to keep keep aware of standards that come from the government too uh because medicare likes and rewards when you use validated standardized protocols for doing things and you know they have these quality initiatives and whatnot and there is a reward for you know doing something like the modified barium swallow in a validated standardized way so even if that is something you don't you don't want to do something new you could be helping your institution uh even financially by keeping up with what the government wants and adjusting accordingly and i've gotten this one and this one is usually from somebody that's beyond speech pathology where speech has asked for it. I've gotten it from speech as well, but it's the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and well, all together now, Dr. Cerici, but it is broke. It is broke. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but it is broke. If, if you're, if you're not doing it in that standardized way, according to the MBS IMP protocol and according to all of the, uh, the most robust and recent research, then, then it actually is broke, uh, because you're not keeping up with what's new, what's published, you know, what the, the latest thinking is on the best way to go about things. And certainly if you're passing up government incentives, your administration gonna, is gonna think it's broke. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> so. and the products were developed in response to a need. Jerry Wilgeman and Joanne Robbins were the ones that approached the EZM barium company more than 20 years ago saying, we need a barium that's specifically designed for our test. We're all over the place here and it's not going well. So that's my other point as far as it being broken. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. The next one, I've been doing this for 25 years and you cannot tell me how to do my job. Oh, we hear this so much. I hate it. I, and I know I listened to another podcast that you had this discussion. Uh, yeah, already, well, but yeah. But that really is the same objection, uh, said in a, in a more confrontational way than the one we went through, which is that it's part of your obligation to do continuing education and to keep up with new things as they change. So. Uh, you know, if for 25 years you've had your eyes and ears shut, you're actually not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, you're supposed to keep them open and learn new things. All, all of us are. Yeah. I, I just, I, that always just stumps me. Like someone that works in the medical field, like we have such amazing researchers and amazing technology. And don't you want to be doing like the latest and greatest stuff for your patients? I just, I find that so fascinating in the medical field where we have so many new advances like every day and people are just resistant to change, but that's for another rainy day. (laughs) No, you're right. But I mean, what if everybody would have said when CT scanners went from single slice to 16 slice to what are we at now? I don't even know because I'm not in CT anymore, but what if radiology would have said, oh, no, nope, we're not going to change. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to keep up with technology. We wouldn't be having the CT imaging that we have now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you on, on it's it's fascinating. Are you ready for the next one? Okay. Verabar's fine for the researchers, but we don't need that in everyday clinical practice. And Dr. Cerises has sort of touched upon this already. Well, the burden of dysphagia would suggest otherwise. Um, the, the, the cost to individual patients to not being able to eat and drink properly and what that indicates is going to happen to them. Plus the cost to the healthcare system of dealing with those consequences would indicate that it is absolutely clinically relevant to do this test the right way that you get the most possible information out of it. 
And now with CMS and Measure 182 for speech-language pathologists, which clearly states that we're supposed to use standardized and validated procedures that are reproducible throughout the continuum of care, that's on the ASHA website as well. So, so we want to make sure that our researchers are doing research, but we acknowledge that our researchers are doing research to help us be better clinicians on a daily basis. And I know you've been around this block before, Teresa, um, in having this discussion with other people as well. Yeah. The next one, we're already standardized. Everybody mixes up the same recipe with the same materials and the same barium powder. Well, uh, I go back to the phrase Julie just quoted, the continuum of care. The continuum of care goes beyond your single site. <laughs> so that even if, which is itself not easy, every person at your site mixes everything exactly the same every time they do the test, it is still going to be completely different than what people do at other sites. So you're not standardizing across the continuum of care. Now, from the researcher's point of view, you can't take results from one site that does it one way and one site that does it another way and put them together and make anything of them, you know, draw any conclusions from them. So, sure, from the researcher's point of view, lack of standardization is a mess, total mess, in terms of trying to report any meaningful data. But even clinically, your patient doesn't always have to be at your site. They can move whatever. They can change doctors who refers them somewhere else. And you don't have a continuum of care if all the the potential sites a patient can go to don't do the thing the same way so that your follow-up data within the same patient is consistent. I I love your, I think, sort of really broad view of everything, like 30,000 foot view of everything, Dr. Shusi. And I mean that, like, I I think clinicians in the trenches just sometimes we're so we're so busy. We're so busy just trying to get through our, you know, 27 patients we got to see in a day. We don't consider these big, huge burdens on the economy, burdens on healthcare, you know, the next level of care. What's it going to be like when they, you know, go off to their next setting? So I think this is also important to just think of why everything that we do today has such a long-term impact on, on our patients and the healthcare system as a whole. Oh, absolutely. And, and clinicians have to realize that the, the people who are the administrators who, uh, you know, on one hand, don't really understand their lives and what they're doing every day. On the other hand, those in the trenches don't quite understand what the administrators are looking at either. Right, right. And that, that lack of mutual understanding, I'm sure, brings tension in a lot of places. But in the end, since the, the flow of sort of power and decision-making is going towards administration. Uh, it behooves the clinical people to try to understand what their drivers are if they want to affect anything on that end. And, uh, you know, uh, the cost is always a driver. And when and you need to justify what you're doing in a way that an administrator uh, understands and appreciates. And the burden of dysphagia is something that has a clinical component for you and has a financial component to them. And actually, when you think about it, can bring you together uh, in coming to the same conclusion that you need to address that as effectively as possible. Yeah, yeah. I had I had a colleague reach out to me because they're part of a huge, you know, very well-known hospital system. And, and the administrators came in and there was a product that they all use that everybody knows about. A competitor came in and undercut them pricing and administration just said, Oh yeah, you know, they're, you know, the, they sold them the bill of goods that it was the identical product essentially. 
Um, and all of the clinicians, the physicians are like, this is not identical at all. And there's this huge uproar with trying to get, trying to get it reversed. And, you know, it was like all this needed to be was a conversation between, you know, administration and clinicians about why we're very, you know, steadfast and on using this product and why that product is not as good and why it's, why it is inferior. And, you know, that, that is essentially probably why the costs are different, but. Um, obviously communication goes a long way if everyone can <laughs> meet at the table. And I would be the first to uh, agree with a, with a clinician that says that, well, you know, the administrator is only looking at the price per unit. They're not looking at the bigger picture. And uh, probably administrators would say, well, the clinician's only looking at the convenience per patient, not looking at the bigger picture of cost. Uh, everybody can be, you know, sort of guilty of focusing on their own world and their daily uh, imperatives rather than seeing bigger pictures. I just think that in this case, that's why talking about the burden of dysphagia is so important because it lets you see both the individual problem and the bigger issue simultaneously and agree on the same sorts of answers. Got got nothing then. <laughs> nothing else to argue. <laughs> So we do have a sampling program. We can send out a bottle of each so the clinicians get their hands on it as they're, as they're oh, learning about the, um, the benefits. But sometimes we get feedback that comes back like this. Well, we didn't like this one or we tasted that and we didn't like that. So we're not going to do that. And we'll look at these two products, but not those two products. And, um, that's problematic within itself because once again, we, we need to go back to the science and, you know, I don't like getting a mammogram and the tech doesn't like hurting me, but there's a procedure and a process for how that tech needs to do that exam, whether either one of us like it or not. And I have a lot to say about this, so I'm just going to keep going. Um, <laughs> thinking about other areas of our practice, if you're doing an articulation test and you don't like one of the photographs in the Arctic test, do you not use that item? Also, it kind of doesn't matter if you don't like it. We need to let go of our personal preferences and we need to acknowledge the evidence and the science. You know, this goes back to the validation of the swallowing tests with the MBSIMP, Dr. Jordan Hazelwood, who is um, one of Bonnie Martin Harris's, Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris's uh, protégés. And they have validated that the swallowing tests using four Verabar products are validated to capture impairment. And that's back to that evidence and that science. And I'm going to take it a step further because I'm on the soapbox. We wouldn't disregard the evidence if we were jurors in a court case. We would never say, well, the DNA evidence shows that he did it, but I like him, so I'm going to acquit him. So why are why do we discount the evidence when it comes to doing this exam and using the right tools? Yeah. I'm I'm going to actually swing the pendulum the other way, Julie, and and go to the other side of of the evidence-based practice triad and think about the patient. So, I'm I'm a mom of a son with severe special needs and I get so angry when I hear these things because it's it's difficult to transport my non-ambulatory 40-pound child carry him in through a hospital, get a swallow study done to find out that the protocol that they did was meh. And it might not have been reliable, but it might have been, but I can't tell, but I can't see. And those things, I don't really care about your feelings as a clinician because as the patient, 
I deserve as, as the patient's mother, we deserve to get the best results, the most evidence-based results that we can with the time that we're given. So I think, you know, I have such a different perspective on these things now because I, I know as a clinician, I used to have feelings as well. <laughs> and I, and I do have feelings and, you know, I, you know, I was, you know, very immersed in, in the fees world for a while and I would get so annoyed when other clinicians would say, well, I don't like fees because it hurts the patient and it doesn't actually, but did you ask the patient, like, do they want to know the results of this test or do they care about how their swallowing looks? Do they want to eat and drink? Did you ask them how they feel about it as opposed to your personal feelings? So I'm getting on a soapbox too now, Julie, but (laughs) I know you're bringing the evidence base, but I'm also bringing the patient perspective because it's, it's, it's not up to us sometimes. Agreed. Yes. So thank you for that. And, and our, and our message there too is then, so, so please don't pick and choose. You know, there are scientific reasons why you should use the entire toolkit. Okay. I'm going to bring it home with the grand finale. It's too expensive and radiology won't buy it for us. Blame it always on the radiologist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, that's where you, that's where you need the discussion of the burden of dysphagia. That's where you need to point out that cost is not the unit price of a tube of something, but rather or a bottle of something, but rather the cost of the healthcare system. And if by skimping over here, I mean, right, we all, we've all heard penny wise and pound foolish, right? So, uh, if over here you save your pennies and over here you're spending pounds, English money, uh, uh, former English, well, now it's still English money that that uh uh are are far beyond what you're saving you're not doing the system or anybody any good you're not saving money you have to understand the true nature of cost which is not just sticker price there's a lot more to it than that it's like if you buy a cheap car but then you end up spending enormous amounts of money on maintenance because it's not just cheap it's really badly made uh, did you save any money by buying a cheaper car? Did you really? So you have to have a more uh, holistic view of what cost really is. And if you look at the cost of dysphagia, the holistic view would tell you that we got to do what we need to to decrease uh, this burden. And that's what's actually going to save money overall. Yes, and when we look at standardization and the fact that the Verabar products don't coat and, and some of the other um, features of the product – the cost of making a mistake can be expensive. So let's not make mistakes. Let's use the right tools. Yeah. Expand yeah. on that a little bit because one of the comments was radiology won't buy it. And my answer to that is yes, they will if they understand clinically why this is different and why it's good for the hospital. And that's what our team's here for, obviously. Uh, we wouldn't be in over 3,000 hospitals and growing year over year with Verabar if it was cost prohibitive, if nobody could afford it. It wouldn't have survived the 21 years that it's been on the market. 22 now, I guess it's 2022. So that's just not an argument. And we we need to advocate for our patients. Dr. Stracy, let, let me ask you, I mean, and this is might be a silly question, so I apologize if I sound really stupid saying this, but it is... A lot of times SLPs feel like we we don't have the seat at the table about, you know, finances in the hospital and things that are more expensive. 
is that something that that you feel like you're well represented in in your hospital with or do you sort of feel like you you're you know barking up the same tree as far as you know they never ask our opinion <laughs> well um you know, I haven't been, again, I've been in industry over 25 years, so it's been a long time since I've been in the hospital. But even when I... I guess, wa- do you hear the same complaints? No, I, we yeah. do. And, yeah. you know, and yeah. actually, I would say that clinical departments like radiology departments feel more uh, disempowered than ever these days as your uh, healthcare uh, corporations get larger and larger with ever more mergers and acquisitions and the decision-making uh, process goes higher and higher up the corporate chain. So it, as it does so, it's removed from the frontline people and the frontline people feel like almost what they want doesn't matter. But the thing is, is that if you make a case that's both clinical and financial in a sophisticated way, it's very difficult for the administration not to listen to you. You have to argue the right way so that part of the skill that you have to have to, to survive as a clinical department that gets what you need is that you have to learn how to argue in a way that will affect decision-making in this current environment. And there's nothing more powerful than having an argument that has both a clinical and a financial component to yeah. it. Even it's if true. that financial component is a little bit indirect, has to be more sophisticated, such as, you know, the cost of dysphagia rather than the price of a product. So um, that's what you have to do. You have to be skillful at that. And those who are can get what they want. And by the way, the price increase isn't as much as people perceive because when radiology looks at a bottle of barium, they're looking at comparing a single dose GI barium to multi-dose Verabar products. So when you do a cost per procedure, there it is an increase. We will acknowledge that, but it's not this awful, horrible, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to break the bank. Well, and if you're throwing out the whole bottle, then well, it yeah, well, that's is, true. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, never mind that when people look at the sticker price on a, on a, on a particular bottle, they're not thinking of the society level cost. They're not even thinking of the next level up, which is the cost per patient, which is your real cost, not the cost per container. It's the cost per patient that you're trying to control here. And uh, if you have something that's labeled for multi-use, you already have a control built in that you need to think about. You know, that's a product that's labeled. It's not labeled for either single use or multi-use in the sense that those words are, you know, flashing on the package insert. But rather, when the package insert says, you know, store for you can store for 21 days, that's when after it's been opened, that's what it's telling you. You know, so um, that's something to factor in as well, you know, cost per patient, even before you get to societal cost. Yeah. I, I like your point about arguing the right way. I'll have to talk to my toddler about that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a nice segue to talk about advocating, you know, how do you advocate to get the right tools and how Brocco can help you with that. So... I'll just keep going here, Dr. Cerisi. Please chime in if you need to. And my first point is, first, you need to believe in this yourself. So you need to be properly educated on why this is the right thing to do. So you need to be confident. You need to be informed. You need to have your documentation. And you need to be persistent. You might get shot down. We've seen people get shot down. And they keep going back. If you give up, 
that sends a message. That sends the message that it wasn't that important to begin with. And I have examples of facilities where speech has asked, they've been told no, and they finally just got it in the budget and purchased it themselves. And guess what happened once radiology found out that it was important enough for speech to spend their own money? Guess who pays for it now? Okay, you already know the answer. I don't have to answer that. So, um, <laughs> but again, we fight for what's important. And if we don't fight, people will perceive it's not. Yep. I, you know, and I, and I, it's a conversation that I hear over and over from clinicians. You know, it may have taken a year or two, like a lot, you know, it, it's not easy to move mountains in some of these, you know, like you said, big corporate, corporate hospital settings. But, you know, I, I've, I've heard so many success stories of people that just were relentless about it. You know, oh, we have new grant funding coming or, oh, you know, we have, you know, a new budget coming, you know, get in your requests now. So it's, it's a lot of times just a timing issue. But if you bring it up once and it's a no, then, you know, don't neglect it six months later when they are asking, you know, for what are new things that you want or what are some new, you know, budget requests that you have. So I, I think the relentless piece is something that I wish I could just instill into so many. SLPs. Yes, and I get it. It can be exhausting. You're still trying to meet your productivity standards. You're running from patient to patient. You know, there's the wife in the hallway that grabs you when you really don't have time to talk to her. You know, all of that's happening, right? So I, I get it. But at the same time, we need to be those advocates. Now, bringing in our team, we have a team of um, five of us now. We've grown also. And we have a new resource site. So I We'll provide the link in the show notes, but I'll say it right now. It's verabrbs.com. It has papers, bibliography. It's got some educational videos on there. Some, it's just got lots of good resources on there for, for people to access and, um, use the tools that they need to from there. Also, we've got our, our four region reps now that are there to support and they can do things like provide in-servicing, they will set you up with the samples. By the way, samples do require an MD signature because they're considered a pharmaceutical. So it's kind of like the pharma, you know, the farm reps having to get that doctor's signature. We have the form. We can walk you through that. And um, we can have that value discussion with anybody that we need to. We can talk to radiology with you or for you. We've done all of those things. And we can have that C-level buyer discussion our team knows how to elevate that conversation and help with that know-how-to-argue concept that Dr. Sarisi was talking about, why this is good for the hospital, right? Why this is good for safety and, and other reasons. I just want to clarify, Julia, it cut out a little bit, but it's verabarmbs.com, yes. right? V-A-R-I-B-A-R-M-B-S.com. So we'll put that in the show notes and, and everything too, but just wanted to yes. clarify. Thank you. Thank you. And and then we have Dr. Sarisi on top of it all. He was assigned to our team, what, three, four years ago? So he's been very helpful, you know, in... Um, three years ago, yeah. Three, okay. Yeah. Well, I I help answer some of these questions, and people like 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 you, you yourself said, Teresa, like, what, really? I didn't know that, you know, and... Uh, mm-hmm. So I can, I can help provide those, those answers. I mean, it's nice to I'm be sure able I to... did everything. Yeah. I'm sure I did everything in my power to avoid paying attention in chemistry. In <laughs> exactly. So exactly. I... So, I'm sure. <laughs> I just didn't take chemistry. I was afraid I might yeah, have yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> I remember taking it. I 
I remember the periodic table of elements and that's about it. So yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> Awesome. Did you know what you were getting into, Dr. Sarisi, when you came on board? What? Do you mean with Farabar? Uh, well, and, and dealing with SLPs and, you know, all that. Well, I, listen, I, I had a cousin who's an SLP, but, uh, she was simply on the school side with that true gotcha. just speech. Yeah. She never did this stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, I did as a radiologist, I would do swallowing studies occasionally. And, you know, they were always homemade. Uh, and then I even had one done on myself at one point because uh, I have sleep apnea and they thought they should do that. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who have to swallow a piece of cotton soaked in whatever. And, uh, you know, that was testing. I don't know what, <laughs> but uh, so I've, I've done it and seen it done kind of the wrong way. And, uh, for me, it's been, it's been really educational to learn about how it's done the right way. You know, when I first came onto it several years ago, what I brought was the chemical perspective of the barium products, why they're different and why that matters. Uh, that I had, uh, but I, you know, I hadn't been assigned to these products before, so I hadn't really paid attention to their clinical validation and worth. And that's been great to learn and to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I know we really appreciate, you know, your perspective and, and what you had to share. So this has been a wonderful conversation. So thank you so very much. My pleasure. Yes, yes. And we do have one last section. Speaking of education and support and advocacy is that we have really gotten on the continuing education train. Brocco's known for education in the radiology community. We support education all over the place through, uh, accredited education providers. And we can certainly, in show notes, upload some of these presentations that are available online now. But I'd like to overview them quick as far as uh, what they are and where you find them and um, what they're all about and why we did it. So you know already that annually we have the Meet the Masters. That's actually an in-person event at ASHA every year multiple topics, but they always have to do with swallowing, right? And those are recorded and they live on the BCSS website and can be accessed there. Now, the Board of Swallowing does charge a small fee for those to cover their ability to upload the CE events. We're, we're trying to work on eliminating those costs for them. And so we're, we're looking to hopefully have those at no charge in the future, but there's always the Meet the Masters. Then through applied radiology, we have some radiology accredited and SLP accredited monographs and WebExes. So there's one, it's a WebEx, it's for speech and radiology credit. It's not all barium is alike. And it's an expanded version of what Dr. Cerisi spoke of at the beginning, where he talks about all the different barium products. And this one's meant to do this, that one's meant to do that. There's also a paper, if they want to read about how not all barium is alike, it's called Clinical Utility of Barium Products. That one's just radiology accredited because the applied radiology was going for a 0.75 CE and ASHA would not allow us to do a 0.75. So that one's for our radiology counterparts mostly. Speech is welcome to read it, but they can get the same content from the WebEx. Then we've got the real big one that was in response to a huge need, and that is a paper. It's a monograph on the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. 
our team gets bombarded with questions every week about ITSI and how Verabar interrelates and fits and doesn't fit. Well, it does fit because everything fits. You just have to know where to put it within the classification system. And heavy hitters on this, Dr. Martin Harris, because she gets questions too with the MBS IMP, right? So she's one of the authors. Dr. Katrina Steele is one of the authors because, of course, she is the originator of ITSI or one of them. And we have a pediatric representation there because pediatrics has its own different unique needs that um, memory, Dr. Memory Gosa has addressed those questions. And then while we were at it, we decided to throw in all of the, the storage questions and multi-use questions and things that help us comply with JACO and, um, and, and still do things right from a, a storage perspective. And that person is a radiology person that um, did that part of it for us. She, she does the JACO inspection prep at her hospital. We also have, through Applied Radiology, a paper that was written by Dr. Martin Brodsky and Dr. Margaret Fines. Dr. Brodsky's the speech person, Margaret Fines the radiology person. It's the um, doing a good modified barium swallow study. So that's a monograph. It's for radiology credit. Then through a different education provider, we have ABC Medical and the two on that, the two presentations on that would be uh, differentiating between fees and MBSS. And the other one is the MBS IMP and collaborating with the radiologist. This one was huge when we recorded it because there was a radiologist from UAB, Dr. Jessica Zarzor, that co-presented with Dr. Martin Harris. And when people heard how engaged this radiologist was and how she was actually acknowledging and using language from the MBS IMP, people were scrambling all over the place. Like, how do I make this happen? So, so that, that's a real useful one. And last, yeah, we do our reimbursement people because we, um, we also support reimbursement questions at Brocco. Our reimbursement people started doing yearly WebExes that tie in the clinical component of our topic as well as the reimbursement component of our topic. So it's an opportunity to kind of learn about a different area of our job and our business when you hear about the um, the reimbursement part. And then the reimbursement people like hearing about the clinical, you know, what am I coding? What am I talking about when I'm putting this code in for billing? Yeah. So those are all of the educational events that are out there and available offered at no charge, again, with the exception of the Board of Swallowing that does need to charge a small fee for now. Awesome. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. All right. We cover everything? Yes. All right. Any any final thoughts for the people? <laughs> I was going to sound like a COVID commercial. We're in this together. Let's do it right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is a way. It can be done. We have thousands of customers who've done it. And uh, the argument not only can be made, but it's important to make it for your patients and for the healthcare system uh, to get this right. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I, I really appreciated this conversation. I enjoyed it so much. And yeah, thank you again for sharing your time and your information with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, 
and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.